you know, jerking off in an auditorium full of dudes. Maybe maybe you're into that, but a lot of people just want to <laughs> want to do it. Uh, you know, a lot of people want to just sit on their couch and beat their meat. Radio Drome. I'm Josh Hadley, and I'm a child of the video store. Cecil Trachtenberg, you are also a child of the video store, correct? Trachtenberg. I've never pronounced your name right once. I don't intend to start now. I'm just saying. You've been on the show over 100 episodes. Have I ever pronounced it correct once? Uh, no, probably there not. There you go. I'm 12 years old, and what is this? And Peter Gajic is here as well and you are a child of uh, of the Canadian video store which is slightly different but still a video store right kind of the same thing yeah i had my mom and pop stores and my blockbusters and vhs's and videomaticas which uh and black dog videos some of which are actually still in circulation which i'm happy about only in canada would that happen thanks to well, we'll get into that tonight we're going to talk <laughs> about, we're going to talk about how video not necessarily the video store although that plays into this how video changed movies but before that one of the staples of the video store was porn if you guys want to get some modern porn not on vhs but there's still video there you go to adamandeve.com and there you can kink up your holidays you use the promo code drome d r o m e and you will get 50% off of a single item you will get a free naughty and nice kit with a gift for him a gift for her, and a gift for both of you, and free U.S. shipping, just for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. I'm going to be calling this episode, I Lost It at the Video Store, based on the new book, I Lost It at the Video Store, A Filmmaker's Oral History of a Vanished Era by Tom Roston. Now, this is less of a book and more of a collection of anecdotes. People like Darren Aronofsky, Luke Besson, Quentin Tarantino, Kevin Smith, John Sayles, people like that, they share their remembrances of how going to the video store actually shaped not only their their love of film, but also their love of what they became as a filmmaker. But there's also something I want to read here that shows just how it's I've never thought of this before, but just how much video in general changed how we make movies as a total. Tim Blake Nelson, an actor and director has has this amazing quote here in the proliferation of close-ups and in windows now movies have changed since the advent of video most films are seen on small screens and so the wide shot or what scorsese would call the shot a real composition that is not just about somebody's face no longer prevails as part of the film aesthetic we're so eager to get in there and see a face because we are seeing movies on the same screen in which we're editing the movies and we don't trust the figure being small in the frame whereas when the movie theater was the sole venue in which you were going to see a movie the wide shot with a figure in the foreground or in the background was just giving you a lot more visual information i have to re reset the impulse to dispense with wide shots when wide shots are very beautiful and more importantly they're often quite philosophical unquote what he's basically saying is video kind of ruined us that nowadays filmmakers they won't take those beautiful 
full widescreen shots because they knew, especially in the 80s and 90s, those are just going to be cropped down and more people are going to be seeing this on television or on video. So we need to make movies like they're going to be seen on television and video. Is that an accurate way to look at how video kind of inadvertently changed how movies started being made? I can see that being an accurate representation, at least in terms, obviously, of uh, the things that were going to be straight to video or straight to television, the made-for-TV stuff and the made-for-video store. I, I don't it's... even mean that. I don't even mean that. I mean like how a, a theatrical movie, that they know they're going to get a certain audience in the theater. But they know yeah. they're going to get five times that audience when it plays on HBO. So let's shoot the movie as they're going to see it on HBO. And if you see it in the theater, you just happen to get more. That's what I think he was trying to say is filmmakers started to change how they shot movies, knowing that the bulk of their audience would see it on a small screen. Which does make sense in a way, but un unfortunately for you know, when, when these movies get uh, remastered, they're obviously not shot in, you know, widescreen and they don't look as good when they're transferred over and remastered. But I can see that mindset making sense then because, yeah, the whole video sales thing was, was pretty important uh, to, to keep your movie in, in circulation and knowing who your audience was. So I guess they were doing that just to just to cut down time of, of transferring it over to video. The quote... um. It definitely makes sense in a way. I don't know if I agree with it. I think you should go go balls to the wall and put as much effort into your movie as you can and really shoot it exactly how you want to, regardless of how it's going to look on video or what. Because, I mean, the ultimate goal should be that the, I don't know, the, 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 the version of the movie that you're putting out is exactly what you you had in mind, regardless of the video sales or what. I mean, especially because, you know, times changed, you know, formats changed. We went from just seeing stuff in full frame to a full screen and widescreen and all those formats changed and every filmmaker that that did stuff to only fit into the mold of a video store or TV release kind of fucked themselves because well times changed it did but it's also frustrating because there's a lot of directors uh that probably were forced to uh kind of adhere more to shooting it for the home video market you know, hey, uh, you know, we've got more people that are going to see it this way. Uh, more people are going to go pan and scan. So don't uh, don't do these really epic wide shots anymore because uh, it's all going to be cropped four three anyway. I think that uh, it's frustrating and it's annoying. And uh, I wish more directors would kind of stand up and make the film that they want to make instead of trying to make it for a market that may or may not even watch the movie. Well, that, that, and that happened even as late as the early 2000s, when DVD was still a, quote, an unknown variable, only big, big movies were coming out on DVD. And even in that, in cases like, there are numerous cases where first DVD release was full frame, even if the movie was widescreen, maybe even on Laserdisc at that point. Look at the problems that The Insider and Last of the Mohicans had from Michael Mann. Michael Mann is one of those filmmakers that has always used the entire widescreen that he's been given. He refused to let The Insider or Last of the Mohicans go out on VHS full frame. So he only released those widescreen. And guess what? They sold like ass because people were like, they still had that mindset in the early 2000s. No, half the screen's missing. The top and bottom's missing, you know? Paramount was actually mad at man for insisting that his movies only be seen widescreen. There was a Paramount executive that was quoted as saying, man cost them over a million 
units, over a million VHSs being sold by insisting the film be widescreen. So even into the early 2000s, unfortunately, that idea was prevalent. One of the funniest things I ever saw um, in showing how uh, pan and scan is just a mess, uh, the movie Multiplicity where they had multiple uh, Michael Keatons all over the screen. And there were certain scenes where there'd be four Michael Keatons and there'll be two, like, you know, one basically spaced across the screen. And so there was a big scene where they're arguing and the one Michael Keaton's arguing with the other and the pan and scan, it was some of the worst I'd ever seen because it was like, what was it a bunch of whip pans? Yeah, it was a bunch of whip pans going back and forth where uh, and it was it was really bad, uh, like digital whip pans. So it had that stuttered like dit, 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 across to get to, you know, the other person. And it was hilarious because it's like this was a scene that, you know, when you see it in widescreen, it was impressive because you had, you know, the same actor arguing with himself across the screen but now that effect is gone because they keep kind of having to zoom back and forth and you're you're thinking more about that as opposed to uh, thinking about how really you know how well they shot it now the quality of the movie it wasn't quite as good as they'd hoped but the experiment i thought worked going with the the um the michael mann thing you've got a director who has more than earned his reputation and then he insists he on something. He uses Michael May- Look at the insider in Last of the Mohicans. He uses every inch of that wide screen, doesn't he? Yeah. And I mean, and that's why like people know his name and they don't know like some of these other music video directors that have come up and have become directors. Marcus Nussbelt, uh, you should die. I wouldn't say you should die, but uh, I'm not particularly fond of him. I think that it's irritating and frustrating that uh, you have directors that are probably not getting as much work because they're refusing to uh, to adhere to these nonsensical things. It's Michael Mann. I mean, the guy is going to make the kind of movie that he wants to make, and his movies are very grand scale and very epic and use those epic widescreen shots. So, you know, Last of the Mohicans was maybe screwed over a little bit, but... He's still Michael Mann, and he's going to continue being Michael Mann and making exactly the kind of movies that he wants to make. And uh, I'll always respect him for that. And he deserves the recognition that he gets for having uh, having as much you know passion for the visuals in his films that he that he has, uh, especially his stuff from the from the 80s and the 90s. Well, now see, when home video came in, it was such a new thing that people couldn't even fathom the idea of video, of home video, of I get to watch the movie on my TV in my house? Are you nuts? People couldn't fathom this idea to the point where people were watching television. Cable is still very much in its infancy at this point. So people are just watching watching their movies on television, and they're watching them generally edited. So the idea of being able to watch a movie uncut in your own home Stop it, stop it, go back, watch a scene again, etc. was so new, nobody wanted to be the first to do it. Nobody wanted to be the first to put out anything on video because of the fact that they didn't know what the hell to expect. So the first home video label is technically Magnetic Home Video. Guy licensed 20 20th Century Fox films. And we're talking about Patton, Sound of Music, things like that. You know, Star Wars is not out for a few years, things of that nature. These are pretty mainstream films. And he moved over 45,000 units in the first month. 
and Fox was like, uh, I think we want to re- redo our deal. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. You don't get more money. So <laughs> Fox started to see this, but they were afraid that video would hurt their television sales. You know, the M- Monday night movie at the week and whatnot. So then Charles Band comes in with Mita Home Entertainment. And this is where our market starts. Charles Band didn't have access to Pat and the Sound of Music and MASH and things like that. I'm going to read this 1978 Mita box, okay? These are every, not counting those 20th Century Fox, this is every movie available on home video in America, okay? Halloween, The Groove Tube, Slithis, Night of the Living Dead, Tunnel Vision, Laser Blast, Flesh Gordon, Alice in Wonderland, The Porno, Assault on Precinct 13, The Jungle Book, not the Disney version, (laughs) 20 Years of Rock and Roll, Rod Stewart in Concert, Yes Stars, Rockstar 69 Studio Sessions, a tribute to Billie Holiday, Cheech and Chong Perform, Jimi Hendrix in Concert, some Superman shorts, Shame of the Jungle, Gulliver's Travels, and some classic cartoons of the 1930s. Do you see how that, the Mita Home Entertainment, was geared more towards people like us than, say, something like Patton was? Is it a surprise to you that Mita Home Entertainment titles sold almost five times as much as Magnetic Video titles did? No, not a surprise at all, because they he understood the market better. It was like, hey, here's what the people really want to see, and uh, they were giving it to him. Yeah, are you going to really go out and spend $80 on Patton or on Assault on Precinct 13? Well, I think that's great. I mean, they obviously wanted to give people more variety, and it's it helped out and worked out in their favor because they sold a lot of units. And I think that's that's awesome that they that they knew that there was a market for for that kind of stuff uh, because there's always going to be people who want to see more than just you know mainstream titles. Uh, they're they're the types of people that go to the the video store looking for for random stuff like all the all the ones you listed. So I I think that's that's fantastic. Then the video store started to crop up. Now, remember, a lot of these things were very expensive. To buy a new video was $80 in 1978 money. So that's like $200 on one movie. And that's ridiculous. VCR is $4,000 at this point in history, okay? Not every person is going to be able to go out and do this. Getting cable, not even counting HBO or Showtime at this point, just getting basic cable for maybe 30 channels is probably $80 a month. And that's, again, in 1978 to $1980. So it's very expensive to be a movie fan at this point. Now, you had before this the stuff from the Warren magazines, those little 16-millimeter reels where you'd get, like, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein edited down into, you know, 18 minutes and whatnot that you could play on a wall. I'm not really counting those. So as the video store starts to crop up, the studios start to see that there's a market for this more than they ever could have imagined. They cannot – people like, like Charles Band and then you have Wizard Video importing all the weird Italian stuff and whatnot coming in and the more sleazy stuff like Wizard of Gore – they can't make these fast enough. Keep in mind, $80 in 1978 to 1980, these things are flying off the shelves. So then the video stores get the idea to start renting. Well, the studios don't like this. Studios are like, so you're going to buy the tape from us and then you're going to make five, $600 off of the $80 you paid us? Uh-uh, we want a cut of this. So at this point, the video store is almost all indie and you know trash exploitation cinema. Can you see how the majors holding out actually might have helped video? That if they had, if 20th Century Fox and Paramount and Warner Brothers had actually released all their stuff, video might not have taken off. Because let's face it, 
people are going to want Slithis a lot more than they're going to want Mash, aren't they? It's it's funny. Um, the the companies just continuously shoot themselves in the foot with this kind of stuff because at first they didn't want VHS, and then VHS comes along and it makes them a ton of money, and then they don't want rentals, and then rentals happen and they make them a ton of money, and then DVD comes along and they don't want DVDs, and then DVD makes them a crap ton of money. So it's just like every time there's some new format that comes along. Their first instinct is to fight it. And then what happens? <laughs> they make a crap ton of money. Uh, you know, they they were all flipping out over Napster and all that. And then what happens? Apple comes along and puts up iTunes and they make billions of dollars. It's like, understand your market and release a product that people will be willing to buy and you will make a lot of money. No, but see, that's the problem. They didn't understand their product. Sid Sheinberg, the head of Universal at the time of this contra of the 1984 Sony Betamax decision, is quoted as saying, the reason Universal will not get into the home video market is, and I quote here, you should not have the right to pay once and see a movie a hundred times. You should have to pay every time you want to watch it, unquote. Hmm. Their mentality was, F you, pay me. Well, that's what they tried to do with uh, Divix. Now, I'm not talking the codec Divix. No, I remember but... the Divix disaster. Mm -hmm. Like Divix was uh, basically you would go to a store and you bought instead of buying a DVD player, you'd buy a Divix player and then you would buy Divix movies. Now, the other thing that was funny about Divix movies, uh, DVDs came in these nice little plastic slip cases and Divix came in these little piece of crap cardboard flap you know, copies and you would pay less for the Divix movies, but that's because you could only watch them once. And so you take it home and you had to hook this device up to your phone line and you put the disc in and it would call a thing and it basically would give you a 24 hour rental for that one particular movie. And then if you put the thing in again, it would call the phone line and it would charge your credit card every time that you wanted this, you know, to watch a movie that you owned. That's actually a takeoff of something that happened in the VHS era, though. There was a there was a, a new format that was trying to challenge VHS in the early days. I think it was called U-Matic or something like that, where the tape could not be rewound. You'd have <laughs> to take it back to the video store and pay them to rewind it with a special rewinder. That's the same concept as Divix, essentially, isn't it? You get yeah, to watch much. it once. And thankfully, people, like, didn't go for it. I was, I remember there were people buying it and I'm like, why are you buying this? Like, don't you, I think that a lot of it was stupidity. Like they didn't understand that uh, they were buying something and then they weren't going to be able to continue to use it. They weren't looking at the bigger picture of it. And thankfully it bombed really hard and we're not stuck with that now. I think that's disgusting. It's just showing that people want to you know, money grub as much as they can. It's, uh, I guess it's not enough that people want to see your movie in theaters. It's not enough that they want to buy a copy and, and own it. No, you got to keep paying to, to rent a movie and keep paying every time you want to watch it. It's just, it, it just shows the, the immense amount of greed that certain people have and that, uh, the whole property and rights thing can get a little ridiculous, uh, when it comes to some people like it, when you when you rent a movie that that should be you know it's it's a rental every time you you take out a movie you're buying you're paying a little less 
to be able to rent and watch it. But if you buy one, like if you actually buy your own copy, that's it. You've spent a little more and you get to keep it. Whereas that whole DivX thing just sounds like complete bullshit. I don't even remember that, and I'm glad that I don't. I, I, I remember seeing the commercials for it. I remember seeing it like, you know, the demo and in some stores. But yeah, DivX bombed crises. So wasn't that less than a year that that actually existed, maybe? Yeah, wow. I think it made it less than a year. And I mean, that just goes to show that like, look, you really you want to, but you're not going to be able to screw the general public. And the thing is, you're, you're telling me that people wouldn't have figured out some kind of workaround. Oh, yeah. There's always a workaround. Like uh, I, I used to in the VHS era, I got tons of screeners from TV stations and whatnot because I worked in various media sources. What they tried to do for screeners was it's VHS, so it's magnetic tape, right? They would put a little magnet on the inside of the VHS tape. So as you played it, it would erase the tape so you could only watch it once and not copy it. <laughs> it was uh. re- it was real quick before you figured, let's just unscrew this and take out the magnet. <laughs> you know, it, it didn't take us long to figure out, just take out the damn magnet. That said, what about when the video store started to come in? Because, like I said, we're, we're all into the exploitation, the horror, the sci-fi and whatnot. In these early years, mom and pop stores were popping up so much that Newsweek did a piece on them, and it was either 1983 or 1984, There are more that there were more video stores in America than any other type of store that had popped up in the last three years. That, you know, there were other startup-type stores, but video stores proliferated to the point where they were like a virus. Every town, you you could have a town of like, you know, 8,000 people, and you'd have four mom-and-pop video stores. This is all pre-Blockbuster taking over and wrecking everything. Video was that popular. So obviously, you needed product for a video store, right? The majors were still holding out. They were still dealing with cable. They didn't even like dealing with cable, but that's a whole different subject. So you had the Charles Bands and the Lloyd Kaufmans, and you had all of these the movies that would have been made for the drive-in just five years earlier now being made direct-to-video. Direct-to-video was a phenomena that I don't think if you weren't there, you can understand. If you grew up when you always had Netflix and direct and DTV movies, I don't think people can understand what a phenomena direct-to-video was. Well, direct-to-video really obviously helped a lot of uh, sort of the more lower, lower, le- lesser known filmmakers like like the Lloyd Kaufmans and stuff be able to distribute their, their product. And I think that was really a great time for you know the the types of movies that we in particular really love you know the little the exploitation movies and the smaller sci-fi flicks and the the smaller action movies uh, without that that you know that boom and and directors being able to put those movies out you know we wouldn't have uh, we wouldn't have guys like Lloyd we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't be treated to actors like Red Brown and and stuff like that so that really introduced uh, people and helped people see more of these smaller lesser known genre films. Yeah, the uh, the VHS boom it really helped uh, the the smaller companies and uh, there are a lot of indie films that probably wouldn't exist today if uh, that didn't happen. It definitely was a good thing that uh, the movie studios were stupid enough to not realize the uh, the market and get into it when they could have because uh, that really just opened the door for things like Empire Pictures and whatnot to uh, really do well and uh, Canon. And just get out there and make these really fun, entertaining movies that weren't uh, huge budgeted things and they weren't trying to rip off their audience. But eventually the studios always catch on. And then when they catch on, they flood the market. I don't think something like Blockbuster would have 
taken over as much as it did by the early 90s if they didn't have the studios behind them. If they were just stocking trauma movies and wizard video movies and live entertainment and media home entertainment, I don't think they would, that would have worked. It was they were studio back. And I think that changed the dynamic. People like us were going to rent, you know, a sleepaway camp movie or, or a best of the best film or whatnot. Most people were going to rent Fritzy's Honor or Sophie's Choice, you know, the new Clint Eastwood movie. In a lot of cases, the studios, when they did catch on, they flooded the market to the point where it became unprofitable. A lot of independent filmmakers have essentially the same horror story about numerous different companies. By 1983 and 1984, you could sell anything on home video. There's a quote by one guy. He said, if you put the right cover on it, I could sell a thousand units of my bar mitzvah video an hour with the right cover. <laughs> By the time you got to about 1987, 1988, that was no longer possible because you had all of the, the bigger studios gobbling up the smaller distributors and making them subsidiaries. It got to the point where, where some filmmakers said, you just can't make money at this, that, yeah, yeah, my, my movie sold 60,000 units, and yet somehow it didn't make a profit after advertising and packaging. And he's like, having your movie distributed on home video by the late 80s, was a death sentence. The studios wrecked the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely, because you'd go uh, to the mom-and-pop video stores, you would find uh, a wall of a variety of stuff. You would find all kinds of movies. I mean, I actually, uh, there was a book that uh, I wrote the foreword for where I was talking about how I discovered like my love of bad movies because I was venturing out into the non-mainstream stuff. You'd go to Blockbuster, and they have... 50 copies of the matrix and there's no room for all these little tiny films i mean you could go into the aisles and you might find like turkey shoot or something but they'd have like one copy and it would never be in stock and then they started like uh they got in trouble for like editing movies it just was uh, it was annoying and it was bad and really if they didn't have the support of the studios behind them they wouldn't have flourished quite as much as they did but the problem was blockbuster was kind of like starbucks blockbuster would come into town and next thing you know there's 50 of them and all the mom and pop stores start going out of business because they just can't keep up because the majority of the general public they're they're going to go and hey I want to see you know new hit movie number 10 that uh, just came out on home video and the little mom and pop shop only has a couple of copies and blockbuster has a hundred of them they're always going to be able to go there and get uh, the movie that they want to see and uh, meanwhile you know people like us we want to see the weird ball movies and we can't um, there was a west coast video near a friend of mine and we used to go there all the time and they had just great movies they had all kinds of really unusual odd titles and it wasn't a mom and pop store but it was still a chain that wasn't quite you know blockbuster they got bought by blockbuster and i remember they took all the unusual oddball movies and threw them in the garbage and then consequently locked the dumpster so that uh, you wouldn't have any dumpster divers going in there and, and pulling them out. And it was just so frustrating. And it, like I said frustrating a lot tonight. It was so annoying because why wouldn't you just label these and rent them? Why would you throw them out? Because we're going to talk about porno in a little bit and how that helped shape the video store. You want to talk stigma, the porno movies, but Curse of the Cannibal Confederates and things like that had the stigma of sleaze. And when you're a clean store like a Blockbuster, you don't want a cannibal holocaust. 
you don't want a movie like Fulci Zombie in there. They don't fit. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be a big problem a lot of the time. Like you said, the corporations uh, moving in on the video stores is a lot like, you know, Starbucks. It's just kind of a watered-down version of, uh, of something that the general public actually enjoys, like with mom-and-pop video stores selling a lot of the more sort of oddball movies that we all enjoy. Uh, and then you got the corporations coming in with their watered-down, uh, edited, very badly edited versions, bad prints of, of movies. And it really does... Um, it can really mess with with the the smaller chains, the the mom and pop stores, the smaller video stores. Because ultimately, my my favorite video stores were always the sort of more independently run ones. I would always find myself going uh, to Videomatica a hell of a lot more often than Blockbuster because I would find a lot more movies. I would find a much bigger selection rather than just simply the whatever's popular at the time or whatever's Blockbuster. Uh, main... Blockbuster didn't speak to you. Videomatica did. That's right. Now we got to talk about <laughs> porno was <laughs> such a big deal. Now. Keep in mind, I said buying buying like a wizard video or a magnetic video or Mita or something would be eighty dollars in in you know their their contemporary money. Porno, on the other hand, might be as much as hundred and twenty dollars. So pornos were much harder to get. To be able to rent a porno and jack off in your own house and watch the scene again, this is something you could only have dreamt about. These were never going to play on TV. I mean, yeah, you had like, you know, the Spice Channel and American Triple Ecstasy in the later 80s, but these were never going to play on TV. And now you didn't have to go to that sleazy part of town where the floors were sticky and it wasn't from soda residue. Now you could jack off in your own home. It is estimated that porno made up 78% of all video rentals between 1982 and 1984. Keep in mind how many mainstream movies were out at that point on video or even like stuff like Wizard. 78% of their business being porno. That says something, doesn't it? Yeah, the, uh, the there was almost a um when when the when HD DVD and Blu-ray were coming out and the format wars were going at that, Blu-ray said they don't want porn and HD DVD got all the porn. So that was pretty much like right there. That was like, uh-oh, Blu-ray is going to die. And then they panicked. And there was a few other things that happened. But long story short, uh, I think they got Warner Brothers to sign on. And then some other company signed on to Blu-ray. And then that ended up putting uh, HD DVD out of business. The exact it, same opposite thing happened in the uh, 80s with VHS versus Betamax when it came to porn, though. Beta would not, because Beta was made exclusively by Sony. And Sony said no porn. VHS said porn. VHS started selling six times as many players as Beta. If, if Beta had taken porn, that might have been the standard format throughout the 90s. Yeah. No, the, the thing was with, uh, with HD DVD, the only reason why is because everything happened so quickly. They were like, HD DVD announced, hey, we're going to do porn. And they were like, okay. And everything started shifting. And then Blu-ray, like they needed, like Sony didn't want to lose another format war they lost every single format war they ever put they ever they were learned in from the beta mistakes they learned from the beta mistakes they learned from mini dvd or not mini dvd a uh, mini disc uh they learned so many and then finally they just said all right look who do we have to pay off and they paid off all the right companies and then everything swung back to them so blu-ray was the first time they ever won a format war i can definitely believe that i mean people want to jerk off in the comfort of their own homes and i think uh it's really as simple as that. It's uh, 
it, it kind of takes away the shame of, I guess, if there is shame of, of going to a porno theater and, you know, jerking off in an auditorium full of dudes. Maybe maybe you're into that, but a lot of people just want to want to do it. Uh, you know, a lot of people want to just sit on their couch and beat their meat. And, uh, you, you know, a lot of people don't want people to know that they jerk off. So this is kind of a I guess it's an uplifting feeling to know that you just have it there in the, the comfort of your own home. So I can definitely see how that would be such a big sale because uh, human beings are, are perverts and you know, there's nothing wrong with that. 42nd Street Pete has the great joke. There were only two great people ever shot in the head in a movie theater. Abraham Lincoln and the guy sitting in front of Pee Wee Herman. (laughs) Was your video store one of those ones that was curated by people like Quentin Tarantino or Kevin Smith who were very open about how when they worked in the video store, they knew these movies. They would recommend movies to people. One of the great things about the non-corporate video stores was you could go in and you'd talk to somebody. I mean, he was nobody at the time, but like a Quentin Tarantino. This would be the guy that knows everything. He knows you, you liked this one movie and you liked the way it looked. He knows that cinematographer also did these movies. This is the guy that's going to recommend a Margaretti movie to you. This is the guy who's going to know all the minutiae, and he's going to know your style and what you're into. People like Tarantino and Kevin Smith were that clerk. Did you guys have those kind of clerks there that would that you would go to and ask advice like hey I really liked Q the Winged Serpent. Do you have anything else by Larry Cohen or did you just have the horror sections over there? I've I found them to be uh they would be very helpful like I I would uh ask them if I you know if I had just watched uh a trauma movie or a Fulci flick. Um, at least the ones in uh, Videomatica were always very helpful because I found with the more independent uh, mom and pop style or just indie video stores, those ones really they gave a shit. Whereas uh, going to Blockbuster, they don't. That's really more of the you know horror sections over there kind of thing. As far as like memorable video store experiences, it's kind of the opposite when it uh, comes to the whole you know having a Tarantino clerk that uh, guides you and, and, you know, tells you all about this or that or this filmmaker or this cinematographer. In my case, I had been um, renting Guyver 2 Dark Hero a lot when I had uh, discovered it on TV. I needed to see it again and again. And uh, I had a video store down the street that carried it. So I would rent it pretty much every week. That was maybe one of my most uh, watched movies when I was about uh, 12 or 13 years old. I remember recommending it to the video store clerk because they had uh, remembered me by this point because I had rented it like maybe two or three times maybe four by then they were like would you recommend this movie man it's like you seem to watch it on i'm like dude it's the fucking best action martial arts movie i've ever seen it's got so much blood and it's got monsters and shit and i ended up uh he ended up really digging it too like when i you converted um, him i converted him i i showed him the the greatness of uh steve wang and screaming mad george and uh pre solid snake david hater and uh he's easily one of the one of the best live action comic book movies ever made so i i uh i felt pretty i still feel to this day pretty happy about that that i was able to convert somebody to that movie because i always like uh introducing people to that flick and flicks like it so i guess i had kind of an experience like that but ended up being the one influencing the clerk and not the other way around the, the video store that I used to frequent, you know, the mom and pop store, uh, there was a girl who I was friends with that worked there and she was sweet, but like she really was just working there as a job. Like it wasn't uh, she didn't really care much about movies. Uh, very cool and w- would always let me know 
you know, hey, uh, you know, you really like these awful uh, full moon movies. Well, there's a, a new, you know, there's Sea People is out, you know. Oh, yeah. You know, I'd be all excited for the most part. Like the majority of the time I would go in there and I would know way more than uh, than her. And it was it was usually it was either her or like the the, the owner was working there. So um, he was cool. But like, you know, he he would, you know, oh, why don't you, you know, rent uh, some Clint Eastwood movies or something. And I'd go in there. And, and just get, uh, you know, the Giver 2 or something, some, uh, <laughs> you know, some some movie that. Uh, the, well, the one thing that was funny, though, that he used to do with me, if I went in and she wasn't working and he was, he would be like, hey, there's this movie that everybody is saying is the worst movie they've ever seen. Do you want it? And I'm like, yes. So they would he would he would pull whatever, you know, hey, I had all these people coming in complaining that this movie was terrible. Do you want to see it? Now, I, of course. <laughs> Of course I want to see it. What is so this? You, the, are you saying you were that guy? Uh, I guess I was that guy or that kid or whatever you want to say. You know, they would uh, he the the thing. I remember that one in particular because there was the movie, the tall, the tall man with uh, Jeff Goldblum. And he had said he got so many people complaining that this was the worst movie they ever seen. Uh, he wanted to kind of run it by a quote unquote expert. So so I watched it. And uh, <laughs> so are you was, saying good, bad flicks started way earlier? Yeah, good, bad flicks started, you know, way back. This isn't really, you know, as bad as everyone's uh, making it out to be. Now, the tall guy or the tall man or the tall guy, I don't remember which one it was. I remember that being pretty bad. But still, not the worst thing I had ever seen. So I brought it back, and I'm like, eh, you know, this isn't really all that bad. And then I would go and rent, uh, you know, whatever else was was out at the time. And I always would end up leaving there because they had uh, like that was back in the day when you could rent things for multiple days. You'd get so, seven days for a buck for yeah. a catalog title. Yeah. So I would go in, and you know, I'd I'd leave with like three, four movies. But then, you know, the, with my insomnia kicking in, uh, you know, I'd watch three or four movies in an evening and come back the next night and be like, what do you got? And then, you know, go to school that day and, you know, not have done any of my homework because I was up all night watching <laughs> movies. <laughs> One of the ones I remember is we had a place that was called Crown Cable, the cable company where you'd go to make your cable payments and get installs was also the video store. And it was a full-service video store, not one of them little half-assed ones. I remember I'd been reading for months in Fangoria. Fangoria had been pushing hardware by Richard Stanley. They'd been pushing that, you know, it had a limited theatrical release, didn't come anywhere near me. I'm in a small town. And I remember they were announcing hardware was coming out on home video. I, I remember I was maybe 14, so I couldn't drive yet, so I'm 14 or 15 at this time. And I'm going down there every week. Is hardware coming out? And, you know, the, it's in the catalog and whatnot, and they got posters up. I remember actually going there at 8 a.m. in the morning when they opened, and the shipment hadn't come in yet. Clerks knew I was going to ask if hardware is out yet. And so as soon as they opened the box, they handed me the fresh, still-in-shrink-wrap copy. And Ooh, I, I remember nice. that they, they knew, this, this is the kid, this teenager, this long-haired teenager in a trench coat, wearing an Iron Maiden t-shirt. This is the guy who comes in for all of these movies. And then I would rent Creepers, since that was the American VHS of it, Creepers and Cue the Winged Serpent. And as we talked about last week, I think that was the same summer I rented both Sleepaway Camp sequels, two and three, and whatnot because of the deceptive covers. I, I, I was the weird guy. The clerks got to know me as as soon as I came in, they'd be like, we just, like almost with Cecil, we got these really terrible looking movies in. Do you want them? Yes. <laughs> People don't understand what it's like, like with Netflix and whatnot. 
even even like when Blockbuster was reigning champion in the late 80s, the clerks there, at least in my experience, didn't give a shit. It's different when you have a clerk that knows your tastes. Uh, Tarantino has a story in Lost, I Lost It at the Video Story about how he'd be able to tell if somebody liked a certain actor or whatnot, if they started an exploitation, he wouldn't just throw them into exploitation. He said he had a lady that came in and was like, uh, she just discovered Tom Hanks. You know, he was still on the rise at the time, so it's not as weird that didn't know who Tom Hanks was. And she asked about, you know, any more Tom Hanks movies. And he was thinking, well, I'm not going to throw her into Bachelor Party or anything like that. So he recommended Nothing in Common with Jackie Gleason as sort of a transition from, now if she likes Nothing in Common, now I'll recommend Bachelor Party to her. Mm -hmm. And he said she came in and he did that and she loved it. That's the kind of experience you do not get on also recommended on Netflix. You don't get that kind of curation. And I think the modern audience doesn't quite understand that. Yeah, but um, I mean, it's just the way that things have gone. I mean, there are uh, you uh, recommendations from people who you follow and you kind of uh, it's working with that with everything. They have um, the Steam curators for video games. You have the uh, recommendations through uh, Netflix and then you have uh, people like myself who you you enjoy them and you'll go and watch their video and hey this person just recommended uh, that these movies are playing on netflix or that this movie is now available or this movie's in theaters and you should check it out so it's kind of a it's it's a different variety of that it doesn't exactly i mean it does replace it but it kind of sucks that uh you know you're not getting that personal touch anymore but i mean that's kind of the world that we live in now people aren't uh as personable as they used to. And honestly, if we still had a lot of uh, video stores, uh, you would go there and you'd get a bunch of uh, minimum wage kids who are working there who don't really care. It's not like when we were younger, where uh, you had people that worked at video stores because they wanted to go on and like make movies. It's now it's just another place where they can go and work and maybe get some free movies or uh, get some like movie swag out of it. It's pretty obvious the video store isn't anywhere near as prominent as it used to be, what with uh, all of them dying out. Uh, there's no such thing as Blockbuster anymore. There's, uh, Rogers has turned into a cell phone distribution thing. There are still little ones scattered around here and there, uh, luckily, in my city, which I'm very happy about. But it's not like it used to be. And, and yeah, the Netflix queue thing doesn't work for shit. It just recommends random stuff. If like an actor is in something you watched, It'll recommend something or if it's something mildly similar to the genre or sometimes even just something completely random. You're watching Platoon and it suggests Gone with the Wind for some reason. It's like, you you might enjoy this. No, Because not... they both won Oscars. Yeah, pretty much. It's like if, if you watched a movie that was uh, an Oscar winner, it'll, it'll recommend another Oscar winner, even though... Those movies are nothing like like one another, so it doesn't have that personal personal touch. I'd I'd like to I, I guess with nowadays with the the sort of uh, the the video store clerks of yesteryear that would recommend things. You you you're you're gonna kind of find that personal touch now, as Cecil was saying, with people maybe that that do the sort of videos we make. I know that I've had a lot of experiences where people have messaged me personally to thank me for. Uh, introducing them to a movie through my show, and I get a lot of comments like that. People going, "Well, I've never, never heard of this. I uh, can't wait to sit down and watch it after watching your video." And it's like, I guess that's that's kind of one of the equivalents nowadays of what we used to have with the video stories. Is, is you've got passionate 
sort of self-producing people that are making shows like that and being passionate about the things they love they love and introducing people to them which in a way is kind of like going to a video store and browsing maybe watching like a goofy little internet video is sort of like you know walking through a video store and seeing some cool covers and chatting up with the clerk about whether to whether to watch it or not it's definitely more personable than than an average night on uh, on Netflix I, I I rarely if if ever use Netflix I uh, all the most of the movies I find out about are just either having discussions with people or, or going off and browsing like retro movie poster sites and and stuff like that. Like that's how I like finding movies because it reminds me of walking through a video store and seeing a cool cover and going, "Hey, I want to see that." And also knowing that that cover probably is lying to your ass about the movie too. Oh yeah, <laughs> of of course, of course. But you still want to see it anyway, just to just to see if it lives up to the movie. And when the movie does live up to the poster, that's like it's even better. And then you then you go off and you think, hey, you know, this director made this and this actor was in that. Maybe I can find more from this dude. Hey, this this one's got a cool poster too. And the last one didn't lie, so maybe this one won't either. Internet culture of people watching reviews and and videos like like ours, like Cecil's, like mine, like yours, um, and some of the other people that we know, like like Brad is is an excellent show to watch because I know that in his show he's ragging on the film, but he genuinely loves a lot of that stuff and. I know that I've discovered certain films through his show, and I know a lot of his fans have as well. So through that medium, it's almost like a, sort of a video store experience because you're witnessing this very passionate person going on about and discussing this movie, and you see little clips from it, and you you kind of go, well, this might be something I would in, I would enjoy watching, and it's uh that's kind of one of the closest things to having that uh, personable video store experience that we all miss so much. Well, and then also, as the video stores are just becoming super huge by the mid-90s, Blockbuster is squashing some of the smaller ones, but there's still a lot around. You started to find that the movies being made exclusively for the DirecTV market are not the low-budget trash that would have been drive-in movies, you know, a few years earlier, like we were talking prior. Now you're finding direct-to-video films that have $10 million budgets and casts of maybe not A-list, but definite B-list stars like 1995's Body Count. The movie had a $5 million budget. It stars Robert Davi, Stephen Bauer, Bridget Nielsen, Sonny Chiba, and Jan Michael Vincent. And it's an amazing crime thriller. And you go, well, nobody's heard of this film because it was direct-to-video. Direct-to-video was not always where low-budget trash wound up. Like today, if a movie goes direct-to-video, it's probably low-budget trash. That wasn't always the case, was it? I mean, direct-to-video was a place where you could get... I don't think any of the Warlock sequels were theatrical. I swear they at least looked like they had the same budget as the huge as the first film. The later, the mid-90s direct-to-video became a higher-end drive-in version, a higher-end version of the drive-in movies that the studios didn't want to think of. Because Warner Brothers... Paramount, Universal, they're not making direct-to-video movies. They're making theatrical films. IVE and Media Home Entertainment and whatnot, they're making DTV movies didn't always mean trash. Actually, I kind of go in the opposite. There's like now uh, there are a lot of movies that are going direct-to-video that aren't trash. I think that uh, the stigma has kind of stuck with it that um, direct-to-video movies are trash. But there are so many good movies. Um, Trick or Treat 
went straight to video and that's because the studio had no idea what they were doing. Right. But that uh, was made to be a theatrical release. Trick or treat is a different, when you know the behind the scenes that was made for theatrical distribution, that that's not really a direct to video movie. It just won't. Okay. That would be like saying Theodore Rex was a direct to video film. That was a $37 million theatrical film that no one wanted. So it was just dumped on video. That's different than a something made for video like body count. But there are a lot of movies that, okay, so that one, but there's a lot of movies that are made for uh, direct-to-video. There was a movie I just saw not that long ago, uh, The Final Girls, that was really good. And that one was made specifically for video. And for some reason, they made it PG-13 and kind of undercut it, but that's beside the point. Um, But there are a lot of very good movies that are coming out on home video anymore. Or they're opening in like two theaters and then they're going to uh, to video. So uh, like Deathgasm. Like what I was thinking about, Cecil, was how by the and I do I do agree with you. There has been a shift back to like what the mid 90s direct to video was. But from about 97 to about maybe 2010, direct to video meant crap. It meant Asylum movies. This is before they were making the mockbusters. Because I've got a couple of Asylum VHSs from the early 2000s, and they were actual movies. You know, that was the Asylum movies and stuff that would now be Sci-Fi Channel Saturday Night stuff. That's what direct-to-video meant for a good 15-year gap there. But I do agree with you. It is kind of swung back. John dies at the end. It was made theatrically, and it was only released in like 100 theaters. I'd say 90% of us saw that on video. Mm-hmm. So John mm-hmm. Dies at the End is essentially a DTV title, although it has the trick-or-treat exception of being made theatrically. Am I just splitting hairs, or do you see what I'm talking about? I, I don't know. I think that uh, there there is a valid point there, but it's also it's kind of a timing thing. I don't think that um, direct-to-video is quite as frowned upon, especially now when you have so many people that just aren't going to the theater and are just watching stuff on Netflix, they have no idea if something was released theatrically. They just see something, Hey, this just popped up on my Netflix queue and it looks cool. So I'm going to watch it with direct video. It it has its transitional periods, I guess, because late eighties to early nineties had a really great, uh, direct video time of some really solid action movies, some some nice lesser known horror movies, and then of course, yeah, the, the full whole moon stuff defined yeah. direct to video late eighties, early nineties mm. in the best way. Exactly, we had some. There was some really great stuff there, and then some of the, the more asylum type titles showed up. You know, the shark attack movies and, and stuff like that. But I think now it's sort of transitioning more to where some DTV titles can be better than a lot of uh, theatrical releases. I mean, right now it's. It's an incredible platform for lesser-known action stars to to kind of to take the stage. Like uh, like Scott Atkins is is one of the most amazing action stars nowadays. And uh, who else? Like um, it, it's a it's a great place to see like Michael Jai White in in some good movies. Jesus. Um, Jean-Claude Van Damme made his best movies in his DTV yeah. era. The exact yeah. opposite mm-hmm. of what Seagal did, where he made his worst movies in the DTV <laughs> era. I think with uh, yeah, with the whole direct-to-video thing, it's especially, as Cecil said, with Netflix, a lot more people are just watching stuff at home and through streaming. But I think not only that, but there are a lot of independent filmmakers and independent independent actors that are more enjoyable to watch than a lot of the the blockbuster uh, mainstream stuff. So, Cecil, would you say you lost it at the video store as a kid? No, uh, I I did not. Uh, I 
it, I, it's a very <laughs> it's a very unusual title. No, I, I did not lose it at the video store. I might have uh, I might bang a chick in a blockbuster, though. I did uh, in the well, we didn't we didn't do it like basically I was I was seeing a girl that worked at the blockbuster. She actually kind of picked me up because uh, I was uh, I was renting doll man. And she's like, doll man, uh, 13 inches with an attitude. And I'm like, uh, like, I didn't know how to respond to that because that was the tagline for the movie. And then we kind of hit it off from there. And then next thing you know, uh, you know, a month later, we're fooling around in the back room. But uh, so, no, I did not lose it at, at a blockbuster, but uh, I did uh, fool around in a blockbuster. All right, Peter, where can people find you losing it at the video store? My mind, losing my mind and gaining experience and knowledge in movies and apparently losing my virginity. I don't know. Uh, you, you can find me losing something, uh, my mind, at, on Twitter at Cinematica, on Facebook, The Cinemasochist, YouTube, The Cinemasochist, putting out content as often as I possibly can with all this mind losing. And on uh, on 1201beyond.com, buy a shirt. My... Uh, I think my shirts are going to be up on there soon. I have no idea. I should really get on Cassandra about that. It sounded so dirty. Yes, it did. Cecil, wh- where where can we see your 13 inches with an attitude? You can see my 13 inches with an Irish attitude over at uh, the Escapist or EscapistMagazine.com, GoodBadFlicks.com, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and uh, all the other places. You can find me at 1201beyond.com, and I did lose it at the video store. Of all the things I've lost, I missed my mind the most. So 1201beyond.com, contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Remember the VHS era. Oh, also, I have a column in Fangoria Magazine all about the VHS era called VHS, the movies you can only see on VHS. Make sure you check that out. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Ready? Roll tape.
Radio Drome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.